0: I'm Cody Royal, and this is the Where Others Won't podcast. This episode is a panel discussion about the habits of high performers and features Alan Stein Jr., basketball skills coach to NBA players like Kevin Durant and author of Raise Your Game, and Dan Abrahams, sports psychologist at AFC Bournemouth in the English Premier League. This episode is sponsored by Athletic Greens, who have a special offer for you later in the show. But for now, enjoy the conversation. Alan Stein Jr., welcome to the show. Thank you so much, excited to be here. And we've got Dan Abrahams on the line as well. Dan, how are you doing?
1: I'm really well, Corey. Equally as excited to be here, mate.
0: Wonderful, mate. Hey, let's start with you, Dan. Um, I want to get into your podcast in a, in a minute. But I want to talk about your role. You're a, a sports psychologist. You're currently working with AFC Bournemouth in the Premier League. I'd love for you to explain to people what the role of a sports psychologist is, because I'm imagining that people think that you're in a lab coat and people come in and visit you and talk about their problems. But I'm hesitating. to guess that that's not exactly what your day to day is like.
1: No, not exactly, Cody. I, I would like to get slightly more. <laughs> Positive than that, but I would admit that psychology, I suppose, and sports psychology has come burdened uh, by definition, as you say, it can be construed as I've got a problem, Um, will you help me? Or a coach thinks a player has a problem, in inverted commas and um, sends the player over to the uh, sports psychologist and it's a much more integrated role and hey look it's a wide-ranging question and I'll try and answer it as succinctly as I can but you know what thank you for asking that because I do think that in sports psychology we need to be much better at helping coaches helping performers understand what we do so at the moment and I'm really really happy to share what I do at AFC Bournemouth who are a uh, uh, an English Premier League soccer club. I know that um, not everybody over in the states are, are, are big soccer f- fans, but we're at the moment. Bournemouth are doing very well in the English Premier League, so uh, clearly it's all about the psychologist and nothing to do with the manager. That's a joke. Um, but um, so really, my my role is three pronged. So uh, it's psychology, culture, and methodology, and. Let me stress, this is just the way I do it. So from a a psychological perspective, and as I say, I'll be as succinct as I can here. um, For me, psychology within an organization, sports psychology is split into three. Um, There's the performance psychology piece, okay, which is what we would all know as mental skills, essentially. And I split that up into a matchday mindset, essentially helping performers high perform, consistently under pressure. And then I, I work a lot with players on what I would call a mastery mindset. So in essence, helping that progression piece, helping them train intentionally. Mm-hmm. Underneath that performance psychology, underpinning that would be player well-being and welfare. You know, I'm passionate now that all sporting organizations need a strategy through their organization based around well-being. And certainly in, in the United Kingdom, where I am, that's uh, a big deal right now. And then underneath that again, um, so I would certainly be involved with, with the performance psych piece, the player well-being piece. And then you've got player mental health. Which again, I think every organization needs a strategy. Um, I would be less involved there because from a competence perspective, we're talking about severe anxiety, depression, uh, addiction, those kind of things that would go beyond my competence as a sports psychologist. So that's the psychology. The culture side is very much working with the club as a whole, the coaching staff, on certain areas like team building, leadership, player-coach relationships, and also working across uh, departments, sort of inter- and intra-departmental relationships. So you're kind of uh, providing a lot of methodologies underneath those um, components. And then finally, I said I'd be quick, we've got (laughs) methodology. And actually, as a sports psychologist, and not a lot of people know this about sports psychology, is that when you do your studies within sports psychology, you do you do study quite a lot of skill acquisition. And I'm really passionate, Cody, about skill acquisition. So I do a lot of work at Bournemouth standing on the side of the pitch, observing the coaches, the coaching behaviors, the activities that they're they're, um, executing. Um. Are they helping players transfer, are they helping them acquire skill? Are they helping them transfer that skill into uh, the game day environment? Are their learning designs representative? Are they creating a decision-rich landscape so players become better at decision-making? Are they helping players be ready to compete with mental intensity, Hmm. mental focus, positive intention? Are they helping players process information at a deeper level? If we've got a Saturday kickoff, Thursday, Friday, we need to help those players be ready to uh, execute tactics. So it's just helping players, kind of on the cognitive science piece, if you like, on the cognitive science side. So three things, psychology, culture, methodology. So whenever I work with a club, I'm quite a busy bee, as you can tell
0: absolutely yeah and that's actually the perfect segue into Alan and, and what you've been doing historically uh, Alan you've been a, a basketball skills coach mindset coach high performance coach to some very big names in the sport and have been helping in a lot of the things that that Dan mentioned there um, throughout your career and then have now transitioned into the corporate side of things as well uh, but there's a an absolutely fantastic TEDx talk that you do about an interaction you had with Kobe Bryant, who obviously most people will know that I'd love just, again, it kind of harps on, on what Dan's talking about there, but those, those habits of, of high performers and the mindset of high performers and how it's just on a completely different level. I'd be
2: happy to share it. And and before I do so, let me just say how, how thankful I am to be paired up with Dan for this podcast, because uh, the stuff that he just, that he just covered is stuff that has always fascinated me. Um, I'm nowhere near the expert that he is in that stuff, but it's stuff that I've always studied, uh, and tried to apply to my own life as well as be a resource, you know, to the players and, and even the businesses I've worked with, because I think this, that the things that, that Dan touches on and works at routinely is ultimately the, the key to performance. I mean, it's the key to achieving our best and, You know, we we talk so much in sport, especially about the physical side, and there's no question that the physical side is important, but the stuff that he's talking about is crucial. So, you know, not only am I thankful to have an opportunity to share with you and your listeners, I'm just thankful to be able to learn while I'm here from the stuff that Dan's doing, because it it really is remarkable. Um, As far as the Kobe story, you know, it's my signature story that I would say I tell 99% of the time I'm in front of an audience, and the reason, um, not only do I think it's a a pretty decent story, but because of the lesson that you'll hear at the very end of it, uh, that really shifted how how I viewed my life, how I viewed um, the way that I approach success and significance and high performance. Uh, Back in 2007, I was very fortunate that Nike basketball flew me out to Los Angeles to work the first-ever Kobe Bryant Skills Academy, Uh, Nike brought in the top high school and college players from around the country for an intense three-day mini camp with the best player in the world. And a few would argue that in 2007, Kobe was the best player. I mean, Michael Jordan, you know, had already retired actually twice at that point. And LeBron, as great as he was, he was still kind of finding himself and was still, you know, climbing that mountain uh, of who he would eventually become. But in 2007, Kobe was that dude. And... You know, a very important fact about me, uh, basketball was my first identifiable passion. It was the first thing I fell in love with um, and still continue to love to this day. So I've spent most of my life in a basketball bubble. Uh, So I had always heard, you know, the urban legend of how insanely intense Kobe's individual workouts were. And, you know, since I was finally on camp staff, I figured this was my chance, and this was my shot. So at the earliest opportunity, I went right up to him and asked if I could watch one of his, his private workouts. And he was incredibly gracious, very sincere, very kind, uh, and said, sure, I'm going tomorrow at 4. Uh, and, and I naively got quickly confused because I had just got done looking through the camp schedule, and it said that our first workout with the players was the following day at 3.30. And he quickly clarified that with a wink and said, no, that's 4 a.m., well, as you guys and your listeners can appreciate, there's not really an excuse on why you can't be somewhere at four in the morning. So I basically committed myself to being there. And uh, I figured if I was going to be there anyway, I may as well try and impress Kobe. You know, I might as well show him how serious of a trainer I was. So I came up with a plan to beat him to the gym. So I set my alarm for 3 a.m. Uh, the alarm goes off. Uh, I jump up quickly. I get myself dressed. I hop in a taxi. And I head to the gym and I get to the gym. It's probably 3.30 in the morning. So, of course, it's pitch black outside. Yet the moment I step out of the cab, I can see that the gym light's already on. And even from the parking lot, I can hear a ball bouncing and I can hear sneakers squeaking. And I walk in the side door at 3.30 in the morning and Kobe's already in a full sweat. He was going through an intense warm up before his scheduled workout with his trainer started. Uh, Now, out of of professional courtesy and respect, uh, I didn't want to bother him or his trainer, so I didn't say anything. I just sat down to watch. And for the first 45 minutes, I was actually really surprised. For the first 45 minutes, I watched the best player in the world do the most basic footwork and offensive moves. Uh, Kobe was doing stuff that I had routinely done with middle school-age players. Now, of course, this was Kobe Bryant, the best player in the world. So everything he was doing, he was doing with surgical precision. Mm-hmm. And, and everything he was doing was at a, an unparalleled level of focus and intensity. But the actual moves were very basic. And his la- his workout lasted a couple hours. And again, when it was over, uh, I didn't want to bother him or his trainer. I just quietly left. Um, but my, my curiosity absolutely got the best of me. And, and I had to know. So later that day, I went up to him and said, you know, with sincerity, Kobe, I don't understand. You're, you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? And once again, he was very kind. He, he flashed a warm smile, but he said with all seriousness, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. And, and that taught me a really pivotal, and for me at that time, a life-changing lesson, and that's just because something is basic, it doesn't mean that it's easy it was easy, everybody else would be doing it. Uh, and as you all know and your listeners know, we, we live in a world that increasingly tells us it's okay to skip steps. And it's mm-hmm. okay to circumvent the process. And it's okay to chase what's hot and flashy and new and sexy and ignore what's basic. Uh, but that, that can be a really grave mistake because the basics work. And they always have and they always will. And it, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the physical side or, or the mental side that Dan you know, specializes in, it doesn't matter if you're talking about sport or you're talking about business, the basics and the fundamentals will work. But doing them, especially consistently, is not easy to do. And as I've been around other high performers, uh, I found that that's not Kobe. He's not the only one that that believes that, you know, the highest performers in any walk of life, they stick to the basics and they have their routines and their disciplines and their mindsets um, and they practice them religiously
0: hundred percent. And that reminds me of really the best person that I've seen in the the business landscape do that. He's a good friend of mine, but I worked in, in recruitment on the agency side. And so it was a sales environment. And regardless of how many deals he'd closed every month, he still made his cold calls and was just religious. and and relentless with them and it was always searching for new business because what would happen would be you would clear the desk you would win all those deals but then you'd have none left over and and making the cold calls is that that basic thing that you can't fall out of love with in the sales environment and It's um, exactly what Kobe's doing there. And it reminds me, Dan, of of one of your podcasts with Jermaine Defoe, where he talks about similar things and he even gets into like the visualization and uh, small details and how he can see them um, in his preparation and just being relentless with his preparation for game day. Um, Looking back on that conversation, because that podcast came out recently, what stood out for you from that conversation. People in North America will be familiar with Jermaine Defoe. He played for Toronto FC in the MLS and uh, has played for England for a long, long time and Tottenham Hotspur. But he said some really fascinating things to you in your podcast.
1: Absolutely. But before I get on to that, and, and I just want to say say to Alan, and it's it's a pleasure and, and, and delight to be on the the podcast with you Alan and, and I really enjoyed your 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 TEDx talk it was absolutely fantastic and you can't believe how excited I am to hear a story about Kobe Bryant because although you know uh, over here in England and uh, there's so many soccer players I work with who are real basketball aficionados they really know the game well and I'm very ashamed to say I'm learning I'm learning <laughs> I'm I'm i, I, I I'm I'm uh, I don't know enough uh, about the sport. I I do love the sport, and I, I and I'm going to make it my business um, to learn more and more. But the amount of I send loads of my clients texts on a daily basis, and um, I often send them a little picture and a and a quote, uh, and it's often a Kobe Bryant quote. I mean, he's just said such brilliant things. So to hear that kind of story. Um, attributed to him just doesn't surprise me and it's just so exciting to hear it and you know Cody thanks for sort of alluding to Jermaine Defoe and as you said most people will know him he's uh, he's actually in the top 10 uh leading scorers in the English Premier League so um he probably wouldn't be as high profile as uh, high profile as Kobe but I've got the pleasure of uh, I had the pleasure of interviewing him for my podcast uh, uh, recently and he actually he's towards the tail end of his career but he uh, is playing currently for for Bournemouth the club I'm consulting with and we talked about um, Jermaine's background and there were some really interesting things and it's fascinating you guys talking about the the basics and and I think what came through for me um, for Jermaine was that he was really good at linking Outcome with process or outcome with basics, if you like. So quite often what happens, and I suppose I'm talking about soccer, but I could be talking about golf, I could be talking about any sport here, is athletes can tend to obsess the outcome. They tend to be like, I want to win, I want to win, I want to win, I want to win, I want to score points, I want to score points, or in soccer, I want to score a goal, I want to score a goal, and Jermaine Defoe is a striker, so it's very easy as a striker to say, I want to score, I want to score, I want to score, but actually... What's quite interesting from a psychological perspective is you could actually create a lot of performance anxiety by obsessing scoring. But talking to Jermaine, yes, he was passionate about scoring, but he was really obsessed with the things that were going to help him to score. that makes sense so in soccer speak and I would imagine Alan it's the same in basketball it's the movement it's the runs it's getting on the end of passes it's just taking that extra step it's checking your shoulders to take in the information so that you search decide and execute as quickly as possible you know he would when he was growing up Jermaine talked about how he would be he grew up in the east end of London on a council estate and he would practice in this tiny cage area and there would be he talked about there being 30 40 50 kids playing soccer in this tiny space and he's quite a small um person and he said he had to be really really intelligent with his movement with his runs finding space the way he managed space to try to um receive the ball control the ball paths receive it back, et cetera, et cetera. So it really came through to me, and I think you can apply this to the business world and you can apply it to all sports, is that Jermaine obsessed the process. He obsessed the things that were gonna help him to score. In many respects, he loved to score. He was passionate about scoring. So loving to to close the deal, loving to to make that deal, loving to score the basket, whatever it is, but you know what? I am going to be so obsessive about the things that are going to, the basics, the fundamentals, even the more complex movements that are going to help me to score the points and score the goal. And that's really what came through to me about Jermaine. And I think that is so indicative of high performing athletes.
0: It is, isn't it? And it's really interesting because when things start to go wrong as coaches, what we tend to do is say, let's go back to basics. And... It's almost like that's where the disconnect starts. Is you start getting uh, players who want to perform the, the flashy moves on the court, or you know, in my instance, in Aussie rules, on the field or on the pitch in in soccer, and um, and you, you can, yeah, that's that's the the scoring the goals and, and kicking goals and, and scoring baskets, but. It's funny how we, we only really wait until the end to say let's go back to basics rather than being hyper-focused on basics. When there's examples like the New England Patriots are, are obsessed with this, and I know Coach Belichick harps on this and I've, I've heard him speak in documentaries relentlessly about this, is the, that whole do-your-job methodology is is being obsessed with those basics over and over and over again and basically almost out basic in your opposition, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. And when you think, you know, Nick Saban, the the head coach of Alabama, who's, you know, a dynasty in college football, you take coach K at Duke, you take, I mean, it's the same across sport. You said it so perfectly right there that they're always entrenched in the basics. It's only those that leave them that feel they need to go back to them to correct the errors and the issues that they've been having. And. You know, so that's powerful. And and I love everything that Dan just said. And I can say from my own personal experience, the biggest difference between the 42-year-old Alan and even the 32-year-old Alan is a much stronger respect, appreciation, and trust for the process. Uh, I used to be very concerned with outcomes and very attached to outcomes. And I found my entire life, not even just my performance, but my whole life was just a series of peaks and valleys and highs and lows. And, and now that I'm so much more into the process, uh, not only am I more productive, not only am I performing at a higher level, but I'm actually happier. I'm more fulfilled because I don't allow, you know, I don't allow the, the highs and the lows. I stick to the things that I can control, which for the most part are my effort and my own attitude, and I trust the process because I know that when I live in the process, it doesn't guarantee an outcome. I don't believe you can guarantee any outcome, but it greatly increases the chance of getting the outcome you want. And it does so with less stress and less anxiety. So everything Dan just said is 100% right on the money. And it's it's so funny because most people that are idolizing and looking up to these high performers in sport and in business, they always think there's this this magic secret or that these guys are doing something magical behind closed doors and they're not that's what was so enlightening about kobe i was expecting him to be doing some fancy sexy drills and some crazy stuff so to go in and see him doing the basics actually inspired me because i'm capable of doing that i'm capable of sticking to the basics in whatever it is that i want to do at a high level and so so yeah dan is 100 percent right on the money um and, and as are you cody with what you just mentioned about going back to the basics
1: and 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 if i can i can just jump in there cody absolutely alan and I, I i i it's a really fascinating landscape this because because sport is is what's so in your face about sport is outcome and we're so and 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 it's measured on that and we watch tv and we we're watching sports on tv and we're watching performance and as performers in my background is i was a professional golfer and and like you and when i when i played professional golf i was just so into outcome and i was too too tough on myself with performance i was too i was almost perfectionist if you like which and a perfectionist perfectionist mentality can help certain aspects of your training but it can be very destructive when it comes to performance now I I always say to, and I said this the other day to a coach, uh, tough and tolerant. I think we tend to be too tough on ourselves when it comes to outcome and performance and too tolerant on ourselves when it comes to mindset. And I'd like to reverse that. Because, as Alan alluded to there, it's that notion of control the controllables. In psychology, the theory is attribution theory, it's locus of control, it's what is within my control, what is not within my control. Now what we know, clearly, is that the outcome is out of our control. We can do things that are going to influence the outcome, but that's out of our control. I think performance is a really interesting one here because yes, we have to have certain demands on ourselves and as a coach, you will have to have certain demands on a player's performance, but we still have to recognize that performance can only be influenced. The brain, the nervous system is too complex to completely control performance. Equally, motivation, mood goes up and down our confidence, our concentration, you know, what we know in, in neuroscience is in many respects, human beings are designed to be distracted. They're designed to look Mm -hmm. at the shiny thing in the corner, which is probably, you know, away from the basketball or away from the football, onto the wrong things at times. And we love to bookmark failure. So we love to think about the mistake we've just made. So there's a great deal of complexity around, around performance. So coming back to this tough and tolerant piece, You know, when I talk to coaches, I often talk about, look, yes, we have to be demanding with performance. Let's forget outcome. Outcome will take care of itself, right? Yes, we have to be demanding with performance, but let's just turn down the volume of toughness there. But let's really, let's be more tolerant about performance, but let's really be tough on mindset. Let's create a culture that demands our players work on their mental skills. Because the greater mental skills that you have, whether it's on the court or the course or the pitch or in the business environment, the greater mental skills that you have, for me, the more choices you have in an acute competitive uh, moment. You know, if you're really good from a mental skill perspective, if you can turn up the volume of that self-talk, if you can direct your attention in the appropriate direction at the right time, then you are going to be a great competitor. Then you will allow the performance to take care of itself. But it really does start with mindset. And, hey, I might be biased because I'm a sports psych but I think the psych piece drives the tech, the tat, the physical side. I don't know what you feel, Alan, and I'm not denying the tech, the tat, the, the, the physical side because that's like denying the sun and the moon and the sky. They're clearly there. They have to be worked on. You work on the basics. But if a player walks onto the court and they don't have the mental skill to be able to think nimbly under pressure, then all that technical ability... Can be can completely dissipate when you're under pressure.
2: Absolutely, I mean you nailed it perfectly. The the mental piece is what's required for someone to get the most out of their ability, their athletic ability, their skill. So if again, if you if you take someone that has average athleticism and average skill, but is world class when it comes to mindset and the mental side, I mean they will outperform their talent. They they will beat players. That are better than they are physically and skill wise um, because of that that mental you know fortitude that they have, and then when you take someone who is athletic and who is skilled and does have a high i q for their game and, and you put a pretty bow on it because they're also mentally tough that 's when you get world class performers they 're not missing any piece of it and yeah the the tough and tolerant I absolutely love that i'll i 'll be stealing and using that with with the folks I work with that's absolutely brilliant. You know, one of the things that I actually find both comical and a little bit disappointing is, you know, uh, when I work with whether it's coaches, players, or folks in the business world, and you ask them, let's just take a, a group of, let's say, basketball players here in the U.S. and you say, you know, how many of you believe the mental side of the sport is important? And of course, every single hand goes up. And you can even call on a couple of volunteers and say, okay, what? What percentage, if you had to assign a percentage, do you think the game is mental to physical? And it usually gets anywhere from 50 to 80% mental. They know that it takes, I mean, 50 to 80% on the mental side. And then you follow it up with, well, how many of you actually devote, you know, purposeful practice or have some type of routine or some type of way to grow and develop on the mental side? How many of you put just as much emphasis on your mental skills as you do on your physical skills? And inevitably, here in the U.S., unfortunately, almost every single hand goes down. So on one hand, these folks know how vital it is to their performance. And yet, on the other hand, they're readily acknowledging the fact that they're not doing what they need to do to make that happen. And and that's why I still think there's a gap between these elite performers and everybody else until the rest of the world realizes that the stuff that Dan specializes in is the key to elite performance. They're never going to get there, and, and you know, uh, luckily, um, I, I think we're starting to see an increase in that. But that's again why the the Bill Belichick's and the Nick Sabins and the Coach K's and the Stephen Currys and the Kevin Durant's uh, that's why they perform at such a high level because they practice the mental side and they devote just as much energy and effort to it as they do the the, the physical side
1: and 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 can i fire in a question to both of you there uh you know we're in different parts of the world but why do you think that is i, I again i i love this term interesting landscape i think it is it, it, it's complex it's, it's interesting and i and i think over in the uk here whenever i'm sort of talking about this i often in whether it's a, a moment of humbleness or it's absolutely true i I have to put my hands up and I say I, I in part blame my industry, Alan and Cody. I, I think we in sports psychology, psychology, sports psychology need to be better. You know, for many years, you, you know, we talk about burden of definition. Um, for many years, psychology was all about problems um, and it wasn't about flourishing um, it wasn't, you know, there's been a wonderful work in the past 25, 30 years from uh, a leading psychologist called Martin Seligman, creating a, a whole branch of psychology called positive psychology, which is about flourishing. Obviously, sports psychologists, uh, sports psychology offers PST, which is psychological skills training. Um, I think we've been, sometimes we're too complicated with our language. Um, it's difficult for coaches to pick up, a, say, a psychology journal paper. I mean, it's it, it, it's written in quite complex terminology. Um, I I I'd be interesting interested to get your is it fear? What is it? Why why are coaches? Um, as as you say, Alan, I agree. I think coaches are starting to embrace it because they've got to. Because we now live in a global society that requires us to find every last piece of the jigsaw puzzle. We've got to get the edge, but why do people, why do coaches put their hands down? Why don't they, uh, don't they have tools, techniques? Mm -hmm. A question to both of you. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I, I've got to admit, I was quite wrong on this. In my book, I wrote about sport kind of being at the forefront of this. And I've heard a couple of things that are contrary to that, that uh, kind of argue that we're, uh, I think that notion is potentially wrong. And I, I don't know whether it's an environmental thing. I don't know whether it's a historical thing where we still have uh, m- maybe older generation coaches where it was just kind of continue on and, um, you know, don't raise your voice if you're having an issue or, or we don't train the mental side of things. Um, uh, I, I think that, I think it's a little bit of everything that you talked about there, Dan, the psychology piece and, and being really out of touch, I think, with popular culture, even it doesn't need to be sport. It could be just an approachability to the wider masses. And that's another element that I talked about in the book that, you know, the, the idea of cognitive entrenchment, which is studied on the, the general population, but then... Um, there's, you know, there's an argument to say that there's cognitive entrenchment in the psychology industry, particularly on research papers where none of us can read any of it anyway. So that industry is just as entrenched as the, as the wider population. So yeah, I don't think there's one quick fix, but, uh, yeah, I have to admit I was, I was quite wrong. I thought this was way more widespread, particularly in the... Uh, In the sporting landscape, and then I I heard an interview with Luke Walton that suggested otherwise, and I thought if the Lakers don't have it, then uh, we all might be in a little bit of trouble.
2: (laughs) I love that. Um, I think it's a few different things. Uh, One, there's a difference, at least here in the states, between the approach of individual sports. So you got golfers, you have swimmers, uh, track athletes, uh, wrestlers. I think those sports do a much, much better job of uh, embracing the mental side and teaching that at younger ages than the team sports do, at least here in the States. Uh, I don't think it's taught to basketball, to soccer, um, to American football, to baseball. Uh, at at those same levels. But the folks that have been teaching those individual sports, I think if you just go back a few decades, just have a greater understanding and appreciation of it. Uh, Now that we've got the, the why, and I know that there's lots of coaches that reach out to me who do admit how important the mental side is, and they know why it's important, but I think the major sticking point we see now is the how. They feel overwhelmed when they hear things like sports psychology And if they were to pick up a a sports psychology journal, I think they'd feel intimidated and they'd feel lost. They don't really know um, how to make it practical, how to be able to say, okay, I have a group of 10-year-old basketball players. What's an age-appropriate way for me to introduce mental skills training with them? What's the language I use? What are some exercises I can do? What are the types of things I should reinforce? So part of it, I think, is well, they're well intended, but they're simply ignorant on what they should be doing. So they just kind of skip over it. And for a while, we saw the same thing with strength and conditioning. Coaches didn't really have any clue how to get their players, you know, faster and stronger and more agile. And then maybe they'd see a YouTube video with some kids running around cones and they'd just go do that with their players. Or they'd go to a clinic and see somebody doing some plyometric drills and they'd just do that. And they're just kind of grabbing what they see and applying it even though many times it's probably not the right prescription. It's probably not what those kids need, but they can grasp it. They can see it and then they can try to implement it. I I think with the mental side, they can't even see it. They don't even know where to start. And uh, again, it needs to start at the youth levels. If we're starting to teach mental skills, and the importance of living in the present moment and blocking out distractions and focusing on the process and not being attached to outcomes. if we would start teaching that at 8, 9, and 10 years old, I mean, it would make a world of difference. And then what I will say in basketball, um, and I say this unfortunately because I'm, I'm incredibly patriotic and I'm a very proud American and I love basketball, but I think when it comes to basketball, we've always had an arrogance. Uh, as a country, and we have some really, really, really good physical specimens and athletes that come out uh, of youth basketball. so many times, I think we have this arrogance at the youth level to say, "Well, these kids are big, strong, they're fast, and they can score. You know, we don't need any extra help. We already know what we're doing, and they just kind of brush it under the the rug when they don't realize that that mental piece is what could make a lot of these players world class and because the United States for the most part, has had really, really high success in the game of basketball specifically, it's kind of that, you know, why do we need what you have if everything we're doing is already working? And that, that I think stems from arrogance, unfortunately. And that's why in basketball specifically, uh, the rest of the world is catching up to the U.S. very, very quickly. Um, I would imagine that what's being taught at the younger ages in other countries um does focus more on the mental side. And that's one of the main reasons that this influx of of international players and European players, I mean, it's about a third of the NBA now, because I I think these other cultures and other countries do a much better job of it.
1: It, it, It's interesting, you know, Alan, I mean, several things to say there. I absolutely think you're 100% spot on in terms of, um coaches not knowing they know the what they know they want players who are resilient they know they want players who uh can play with confidence uh and perhaps compete when they 're not so confident they know they want players who can concentrate they know they want players who can who can have uh some form of emotional control control if you like self regulation but then it 's that how piece well how yep. do I help players do that and then we in psychology perhaps have thrown things like inverted u hypothesis and individual zones of optimal functioning and everyone's like what is that um okay i think i'll go back to my playbook the x's and the o's so you know it's kind of it stems from us creating a language and this is what um, and I think Cody can kind of confirm this. This is where, with my books and my work, I've committed myself to saying, okay, I'm going to read the research, I'm going to respect the research, and I'm going to understand that science informs what I do, but it doesn't dictate. Because ultimately, when I'm out in the field, when I'm on a court or the course or the pitch or, or the golf course, I, I, I have to speak. There's two languages out there actually there's the language of the athlete, and there's the language of the coach. You know, the language of the psychologist needs to be in the classroom when I put my white coat on. But out on out the court or the course, it's got to be like, OK, there's the language of the coach and they can take a little bit more. But the, the athlete who's the gladiator. Then that's got to be some real simple stuff. So I might talk about a game face. I might talk mm. about squashing ants. Ants being an acronym, A-N-T-S for automatic negative thoughts. You know, if I experience an ant, I've got to squash it. I've got to squash it quickly. How? I use a controller. A controller can be a self-talk, my self-talk. So I need to talk to myself when I experience an ant. That squashes the ant, I get back to my game face. That's the kind of Dan Abraham's colloquialism, right? Those are my kind of techniques. But um, I'm passionate about kind of introducing sports psychology in that manner. And I think you're spot on, Alan, that, that that's so important that other piece that you kind of alluded to at the end there and, that, and again i don't know this landscape too well in basketball in america but kind of what i i'm hearing you saying is that a lot of um european players perhaps and antipodean players are coming over and they're playing uh in the nba and starting to take uh, the place of a uh, uh, young american players and that's possibly because in europe they might. Again, I'm going to use a psychology term here, so please excuse me. They might front-load cognition. So by yeah. that, I mean rather than it being about physicality, rather than it being so much about big and strong and what and the kind of the physical side, front-load cognition means over here perhaps we're a bit more passionate about search, decide, and execute. It, it's a bit more about the 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 perception, the awareness, the anticipation, the decision-making, uh, and our relationship with space and lines, timing lines and runs and things like that. And it's a little bit more in uh, front sort of the frontal lobes, the front part of the brain oriented than what can I bench press? Would that be a yes. fair thing to say?
2: Incredibly fair. Yes. And that's, that's why I believe that, that we're seeing this kind of changing of the guard and we're seeing other countries start to catch up with us. And, you know, it, what you just said was so on point, and it just it spurred another thought. Um, I think if you were to line up all of the youth and even high school coaches in the United States, let's say in basketball, and you ask them for a definition of mental toughness uh, or mental skill, uh, I think a vast majority of them would be very misinformed. You know, I know a lot of coaches here who believe mental toughness is the ability to withstand physical discomfort. So they think, you know, running their players until they puke or, you know, making them do a thousand squats or or wall sits and screaming at them while you're doing it. They think that's how you build mental toughness. And, you know, I'm certainly incredibly open to your coaching because I'd love to be able to, to share it with others, but I've. I've always defined mental toughness as the ability to be in the present moment. And I just call that play present. And that was what I always Mm -hmm. tried to tell basketball players. And I I always believed that playing present meant three things. You're focused on the next play because it's the only one you can do something about. So you, you don't worry about the play that just happened because it's over. You focus on the next play. You focus on the only two things you have 100% control over, which is your own attitude and your own effort, and you block out all of the other stuff that you don't have control over. And as you've already pointed out, the third pillar is you focus on the process. You focus on exactly what it is that you need to do step by step and brick by brick. And if you can focus on the next play, focus on your own attitude and effort, and focus on the process, then for the most part, you're in the present moment. And I think an athlete that can stay in the present moment when there's all of this chaos going on around them, that's the mentally tough athlete. So I've always been trying to get coaches away from this concept of making kids run until they puke is mentally tough and getting them to think living in the present moment is actually mentally tough. And that's that's where I think you have part of the problem. They don't even know how to define it, much less change it. And, And that goes back to my original point. If you had a youth coach and they said, okay, uh, I hear you, Dan, and this sounds great. We have an hour of practice. I'm going to do 30 minutes of skills. I'm going to do 15 minutes of strength and conditioning and agility work, and now I'm going to do 15 minutes of mental skills work. They would have no idea what to do for that 15 minutes, not a clue. They know what, they know what X's and O's and skill stuff to do. They're learning the strength and conditioning that they need to do, but that last 15 minutes, they don't have any idea what to do, and that's why – your work and the folks that do what you do is so needed to be able to say thank you for devoting 15 minutes of practice to mental skills here's exactly what you should be doing with 10 year olds i mean that would that would change the game literally
1: well and and coming straight back at you there alan what i you know what i love about what you said i love the play present um uh I, i think that's uh, you know, next play. I think that's imperative. And and what you're talking about there, you know, my translation of that is uh, mental dexterity, mental nimbleness. Ah. You know, if I if I make a mistake, bang straight into the present moment. If I start to dwell on the future, how long is there to go? If I if I go on to irrelevant distractions, the re- the, the referee, the judge, or you know, whoever it is, the crowd uh overly focused on the opposition then bang straight back into the present moment and 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 absolutely i, I love that and you know what as, as well that is alan and cody it, it, it's 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 dexterity but it's context specific because it, you know, you talked about the mental toughness piece there, and 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 as you said, they're defining that. Some people define that from a physical perspective, and it's it's not really context specific. Whereas if you're on the basketball court, you can really practice. You said, well, coaches wouldn't know how to necessarily develop mental skill. Take any one of your activities. Okay and just start by asking players right let's do this activity and I want you to intentionally be very mindful of staying in the present moment if anything if anything takes you away from that then come back to that present moment come back to that process as you talk about the attitude the effort just practice noticing or spotting when you leave that stopping that and shifting back to the present to the process, to the attitude, to the effort, whatever it is specifically you might choose of those or all of those, and then you're helping players become mentally skillful, mental dexterity. And then what you can do is you can turn up the volume of complexity. You can just make your activities a bit tougher, throw in a bit of chaos, perhaps a consequence you know, so that suddenly there's a bit of turmoil in the brains of your athletes. And so then they've got to be, then it's even tougher for them to come back to the present moment, come back to the process, have the right attitude and the right effort. And, and hey, you can even periodize this stuff as you tactically periodize and you physically periodize. So, hey, we've solved the problem right here on your on your <laughs> podcast, Cody. So there we go. <laughs>
0: Perfect. There's a uh, there's a, a new paper coming out. We'll have the three of our names on it, and uh, it, it's, right. everyone's going to be able to read it. Uh, I want to. Um, I actually want to kind of encompass what we've just been talking about there, but bring it back to teams because I th- I feel like, well, Alan, you uh, you say you know a, a play led team will always outperform a coach led team, and. What I, was, what I was thinking as you guys were talking there and I wanted to get out of your way because you guys were busy solving the problem, so it's a, a host's dream. But um, one of the things that, that I feel is missing here is the communication piece and, and how we create those cultures that you guys have been talking about where there's not just those internal checks and balances where we, we centre ourselves but we also have our teammates putting checks and balances around us as well. So whether that's through language, you know, common verbiage that you might use to, to bring someone back centred to, to concentrate or to, um, you know, gain some confidence. Um, so how do we start to embed those cultures so that ultimately it's the players on the, on the field that or the, or the court that are going to execute all of what we've been talking about. So how do we create those cultures where, we can surround them with all of what they need and allow them to go and execute it during game time.
1: Well, what I would say is that um, um we we're, we're we're full of mutual backslapping here but Alan is absolutely spot on with the with regard in in my opinion with regard the um player led culture. Uh, I think that's so important. I I certainly think it's important with millennials. Um, I think that historically sports has been too top down with its leadership. It's been too directive. Um, You have to help players become uh, participants rather than recipients. Um, Again, historically, to press home my point here, I'd emphasize that they've You know just the nature of coaching has tend to be directive it's uh, i have this knowledge in my head as a coach i'm going to pass on this knowledge to you you go and execute this knowledge and i think what we now know from a pedagogical from a teaching perspective Is we'd like to be more constructivist about this that players construct their own world the world around them and and we we, we have to have them involved in the process of learning them in the process of preparation them in the in the process of, of performing and helping each other perform and I suppose to specifically answer your question there Cody I would say and this is Something that I'm having constant communication with coaches about in in some of my consultancies right now is, are you giving players opportunities to lead? Are you giving players opportunities to communicate, uh, be a great teammate? How can you become a great leader? How can you become a great communicator? How can you become a great teammate if you're not given an opportunity? So it, you know, it, it really can start in your activities, the kind of activities that you deliver, and the, the the approach, the coaching approach that you have to those activities. Are you actually giving players opportunities to lead those those activities? Are you insisting on hearing their voice? Are you saying, you know, as, a, as an example, I saw it today. It was like, a, you know, I'm making up a name here, but. You know, Stevie, can you make sure that that Jimmy and Johnny over there are 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 um, are, are are being intense? Are, are, can you make sure they're focused? You know, that's on you, there, Stevie. Make sure you because on Saturday you're the one who's got to go and deliver that. You know, um, are you uh, when you get players in a huddle? You know, maybe you have a five minute activity and you let the players debrief themselves. You re- me- you let the leader debrief and maybe a couple of his comrades debrief as well. Are you helping them uh, experience leadership? So it starts there with the activities and then there's so many things you can do on a day-to-day basis. You know, you, For me, you have to have a leadership team. You have to give players a voice. You have to give them some autonomy here. I think in that way, final thing to say here, in that way, once you've given them those experiences, then they can shine on the court or the course or the pitch. Then they can use those experiences. They can use that experience of voice, of leadership, whether that's a leader through energy or action or instruction, right? They can use those experiences on match day under pressure. That's so important.
0: It really is. And, and, uh... I'm, I love what you said there in terms of getting them involved, and I think that's a, a core missing piece, particularly in the business world, and I, I want your opinion on this, Alan, because you've stepped into that world now as well, and, and you're, it's kind of in your face on a day-to-day basis, and I, I'm curious the reactions that you've gotten with you know things like sports anecdotes, but uh, I feel like it's a, a really missing piece in that we don't allow the people that are actually in our companies to have any sort of ownership or involvement in those cultures. We we sit in a boardroom and we decide that these are the four words that are going to go on our wall, and then we plaster them in the foyer. And then there's there's no behaviors linked to them. There's no involvement from the people that are actually going to have to execute them. We're just told that this is the culture, and and I think that's really gotten out of whack recently because culture has become popular and and everyone knows you have to have one. So we've just created them rather than coming from an authentic place and, and kind of going to the, the team members, whether they're our players or whether they're employees and, and asking for their perceptions. And um, I'm sure you've run into kind of similar things from stepping from sports into business, Alan, as well.
2: Yeah, and, and, and once again, I know I sound incredibly repetitive, but Dan is right on the money. I mean, he's just dropping knowledge bomb after knowledge bomb. We we want people to be better leaders, but we don't give them an opportunity to practice leadership. And, and on, on a conscious level, everyone knows that if you want to get good at anything, you have to put in purposeful practice. Yet we don't – I love the word autonomy. We don't extend the courtesy of autonomy to our players or – Uh, in our business to our employees to let them practice leading. And then we're confused on why they can't, you know, circling back to your, your comment about communication. um, I I believe there's, there's three pillars and it's kind of, they're all, they're all related, but first and foremost, to create any type of culture, um, a winning culture, that is, you have to have trust and you will only be able to, to get on your teammates or get on your players to the depth of the trust that you've created with them and trust is something that needs to be to be earned and developed every day Uh, and that trust is built through connection human connection and human connection requires daily deposits they require everything from you know high fives and fist bumps and pats on the backside to open and direct communication Um, and when we get to that third pillar which is communication often i think people forget that the real gold to communication Is listening that's where that's where the beauty is when you listen attentively listen actively listen empathetically listen uh, you do a few things I mean one you certainly increase the accuracy of the information you're taking in but more important when you truly listen to somebody else you send them an unconscious message that I care about you that you're important to me that what you have to say is valuable and I think few would argue that caring Is the glue that holds any team or organization together. But you can't just talk about it. You have to live it. And, you know, if if Dan and I were together and I asked him an insightful question and I know he's going to give me a brilliant answer, but I actually take the time to listen and I have eye contact and I have open, positive body language, he will intuitively know that I care about him. So imagine a coach asking a player, you know, uh, maybe even during film, you watch a play and then say, well, you know, Joey, what did you see there? How did you perceive that? Why did you make that specific decision? And then you let them talk and you let them explain. You're going to increase not only accuracy, but you're going to increase the care factor. And then uh, the way I look at culture, I, again, believe there's this continuum. Uh, I think first an organization has to know their identity. Like, why do they exist? What is their goal? Why are they all working together and making sacrifices? What are they working for? And, and they have to have a, you know, they have to know the why. Uh, then I believe you need to collectively set standards. In order for us to live out our identity and achieve what we're trying to achieve, all of us need to live up to these standards. This is the code at which we all agree to live by so that we'll be our collective best. And then once we have that, Next comes accountability, and that's where the trust comes in. We have to be willing to hold each other accountable. So if we have a standard that we will be on time for all meetings, games, and practices, and Dan shows up three minutes late, I need to be able to hold him accountable to the fact that he just broke one of our standards. And if we continue to break standards, we're not going to live out our identity. And if we've created trust and Dan knows I care about him, then I'll be able to tell him with love and grace Hey, Dan, you were three minutes late, man. That's unacceptable. We can't allow that for us to, to be the best we can be. And, and he'll understand that it's coming from a genuine place. And then inevitably later in the season when I'm late, I'm going to expect Dan to hold me accountable. And, and, and Dan said something before about kind of top-down leadership and why we need to get away from that. A lot of it has to do with accountability. See, accountability should be horizontal as much as it is vertical. It shouldn't just be the coach that gets mad at the player for being three minutes late. All of the players should hold that player accountable. And part of it goes back to rewiring what it means to hold someone accountable. See, I believe holding someone accountable is something you do for them, it's not something you do to them. If I hold Dan accountable to the standards we've created, it's not because I don't like him, or it's not because, it's because I care about him. I care about him as my teammate, or as my player, and I care about our collective team and our standards. And I know that by me holding him accountable, I'm trying to to let him know, Dan, you're better than this. You, you You being three minutes late, man, that's unacceptable. You are better than this, and I want you to be the best you can be because I care about you as your teammate. And ultimately, the degree at which an organization or team can hold each other accountable to the standards that they've set to uphold their identity That's what culture is. It's your ability to do those things. I know the word culture gets thrown around a lot, but it's your ability to do those things. And I believe culture is best measured when the coach or the the CEO isn't there. That if, if Dan is the coach of a soccer team and he chooses to skip practice and the team has to run a practice by themselves, how much slippage is there? If there's a tremendous amount of slippage, then Dan has not created a winning culture. He's created when he's there, things go well. When he's not, the wheels fall off. If he was, if he'd created an elite culture, there would be minimal slippage. The players would be focused. They'd be intense. They'd have a plan. And they would run an immaculate practice even without the coach. And, you know, when I talk to CEOs now and I say, you know, what's your gut feeling if you went on vacation for a week and if all of a sudden I see a look of fear on their face that they're afraid their whole business would would shut down if they left, then I know that they don't have a winning culture and that that's a problem and that they need to be able to change that uh, immediately. And that's, that's why it's so important to have this player-led mentality. And it takes, it takes a leader and a coach or a CEO with confidence but also with humility to be able to say, look, I'm an important part of this, but I'm not the one that holds this whole thing together. I'm trying to empower other leaders so that even if I'm not here or even if I have a bad day, this thing can still run itself. And, you know, I firmly believe, even though these guys would never miss a practice, you have to think hypothetically, if Bill Belichick or, or Coach Kay or Nick Saban, if they chose not to show up for practice, I think you'd see the Patriots and I think you'd see Duke basketball and Alabama football still run at a very, very, very high level because they've created player-led organizations.
0: Totally. And you've I, you've also plugged our, our other episode of, of humility mm-hmm. with uh, with Adam Grant and Joe Dumas. That's uh you've nailed Alan. it there. Alan's Alan's on fire. Someone check him, make sure he's okay. That was brilliant, man.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um and I will add there, um, as you quite rightly say, Alan's on fire because there's there's a few things that really resonated with me. I'll give you a couple of scientific pieces there and one sort of uh, little story from my own playbook. Um uh, Alan, Alan used the term uh, connect, uh, connectedness and, and caring. Now, uh, not long ago, and this episode hasn't come out yet, but for, for, for my podcast, The Sports Site Show, I interviewed uh, a woman called Professor Sophia Jowett, who is based at, she's a professor at Loughborough University, which um, is in Leicestershire in England, and it happens to be regarded as uh Probably, probably the world's leading sports college and um, they do some wonderful research and she has spent 20 years studying player-coach relationships. Okay, so that is her main thing. Her and her team study player-coach relationships. So even though she doesn't use the term connectedness or or, or caring, she she, uh, would um, say exactly the same things as Alan is saying there, what she says is it's closeness, it's that closeness mm. of relationship and the commitment a commitment to having a close relationship that is vital. So she's done 20 years of research, she's interviewed thousands of athletes, young athletes through to Olympians um, and uh, coaches of young athletes through to Olympic athletes, closeness is number one. Coaches should strive to have a close relationship with their athletes. Um, second bit of science here underpinning exactly what Alan said. He used the term identity and identity driving uh, a feeling of belonging, of, of, of uh, teaming. Um, social identity theory is there's, there's not a lot that we can say that we know in social psychology, social psychology, as the name suggests, it can be a little bit flowery at time it 's not really a hard science, but social identity theory has over ten thousand uh, pieces of research connected to it and what social identity theory says is that when I categorize myself as belonging to a group. I internalize my understanding of the group and it becomes integrated into my sense of who I am. It becomes part of my identity, it's my social identity. And that's got a powerful impact on how I think and feel and behave. It, it creates an emotional tie between me and the group. You know, it becomes my in-group and then the out-group. Well, I don't like the out-group. I love the in-group. You know, I kind of create an island around uh, myself in this group. You know, I'm a Spurs supporter back in England, Tottenham Hotspur, not San Antonio Spurs, Tottenham Hotspur yep. and soccer. And and I will identify myself as Other than Bournemouth, who actually pay me, but um, <laughs> I, I would identify myself as a Spurs supporter. And when I'm in amongst Spurs supporters, I will behave in a particular way. So it's so important. It's so important for a company, for an organization, a sporting organization to work on their identity. Who are we? What do we offer? What's our story? What's our narrative? How can we attract people into our narrative? How can we make them a part of our narrative? How can we build that emotional tie? And finally, a story from my own playbook, and this comes to the accountable stuff, which that's brilliant, Alan, and I completely agree. And it's just today. Today, I had a conversation with a coach who was taking up a new coaching role. He's a little bit nervous, a bit edgy. It's a big role for him. It's a big step up into this coaching role. And he said, I don't know what to do. I don't, I, I don't know what, whether to, shall I be tough on them now? Shall I be demanding or, or, or shall I go easy on them? What, what should I do? And I said, hey, stop, stop. How about this for an idea? Well, we'll we'll throw some ideas out, but what about this for an idea? Why don't you get your players in a room, split them into two or three groups and conduct a facilitation. I don't want you to talk much. I want you to get them talking. And I want you to ask them to come up with the behaviors that they want to demonstrate moving forward um, under you as a coach okay what behaviors do you lad do you kids want to demonstrate uh, on a day-to-day basis and then at the end of that once those players have come up once they've decided whether it's four or five or seven or ten or however many behaviors it is and you can talk about the actions related to those behaviors then I want you, all I want you to say, or what I I want to suggest that you say is you talk about accountability around those behaviors. You, the players, have picked those behaviors, I'm now holding you accountable, because as Alan alludes to, I'm passionate about you getting to where you wanna go. I wanna co-create solutions here, and part of this is you've chosen your behaviors, you're now accountable for them. I'm gonna help you get to where you wanna go by insisting that you demonstrate those behaviors every day. And again, we come back to that leadership piece of and team piece of holding each other accountable, not just the leader holding the players accountable, but the players holding each other accountable. And that is very strong indeed. So the the, the closest, the connectedness, the caring, the identity, the accountability, we're very much singing from the same song sheet there.
0: That's that's spot on, mate. And that's that's one of the things that, that we've done with AFL Team Canada. Uh, just a little exercise is we we took away uh, even discipline. So we go to Australia for three weeks for the International Cup every three years and the players or the, the leadership group get to decide any discipline. So if someone screws up or, or goes, you know, against any of the team rules, shows up late, it's that no one's accountable to me. The players manage that on their own and and they'll decide what, happens if anything to that player or if there's any sort of uh, reprimanding so there's there's little things you can do within that that uh, just continue to build that that culture around people um, and around that player led um, piece rather than that that traditional top-down because when you're accountable to in our group we take 30 players when you're accountable to another 29 people rather than just one there's obviously added impetus But you also don't want to piss off so many of your friends. And it's incredible what that can do to, to change behavior and and create buy-in. Um, gentlemen, we have explored so much today. It was dangerous of you to admit that you're a Spurs fan, Dan, uh, producer Adam and I here Mm -hmm. in Apollo studios are both big Arsenal fans. So, uh, kudos to you for going there. Um. Where, where can we,
1: I I wouldn't have come on the show if I had known that you asked
0: Well, you, you invited me on your show as well. So this, this hasn't worked out well for either of us.
1: (laughs) That was a big mistake, clearly.
0: Uh, opportunity, (laughs) opportunity to, to plug yourselves here, guys. Alan, let's start with you. You've got a bunch of really cool stuff coming up. Where can people find you? What should they look out for from you?
2: Well, I'm actually really excited. I've uh, my first book I just finished, and I'm in the, the the pre-launch phase right now as we're recording this. But the book will actually come out January eighth. So depending on when these episodes air, it will probably be be out when folks are listening to this. Um, and it really encapsulates everything that that we've been talking about in this discussion, which is why this has been so much fun. And it's you know I, I'm I'm just fascinated. By the fact that you know Dan and I have never met, you know we we live across the pond from each other. We've had completely different backgrounds and different sports, and 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 learned from different people, and yet we have so much alignment and so much harmony in what we believe. And we may use slightly different terminology, but man, we're singing the same song, and that is so refreshing to me. Um, one, it makes me feel really good to to have some of my information validated by someone as good as he is at what he does. And I'm learning new stuff. I mean, I've been taking copious notes during this and look forward to sharing this stuff, you know, with the folks I work with. But, you know, if anyone is interested in the book, it's called Raise Your Game, uh, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. Uh, And you can just go to raiseyourgamebook.com. You'll see everything you need there. And, And the book was intentionally written for folks in the sport world, whether it's players and coaches. Or folks in the business world, uh, I'm, I'm hoping both will find significant value. Uh, and then, if anyone is interested in any of the other areas of my business, um, such as my speaking, you can just go to allensteinjr.com. But guys, it was really, really a pleasure to to chat with you both, and, and really appreciate what both of you are doing.
0: No, thank you. And and I can vouch for the book as well. I've had a little primer and, and read some of it. And I've been a big fan of yours for a long time, Alan, um, and particularly your social media presence. And, and you've been pumping out great content for a long time. And, and this book is going to uh, encapsulate uh, that and then build on top of it. And uh, again, I've read some of it and it's absolutely fantastic. I, I can't recommend it high enough for anyone listening. Uh, Dan, what about you, mate? What have you got going on?
1: Wow. Okay. So, uh, well, first of all, Cody, thank you so much. Even though you're an Arsenal supporter, thank you so much for um, inviting me on, mate. I've really enjoyed it. And and Alan, it's been an honour and a privilege. And as you've alluded to, um, we, we are on the uh, uh, other side of the pond or the Atlantic to each other and... Um, but as you say, it seems like we sing from the same song sheet on 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 so many things. And um, I've nearly booked my plane ticket over to the States now to actually live there because uh, after you after you said about the challenge with uh, coaches wanting to know the how, so uh, I, I you might find another a green card resident there in the future. But um, in all <laughs> we'd, no, we'd love in all seriousness, open
2: arms, man. We'd love to. Have, <laughs> you're very, very, very what? much
1: seated here, my friend. Well, worst way we'll have to connect anyway on a on a on a Skype ourselves. But um uh, no, look. Um, thanks, Cody. And um, I'm danabrahams.com. Uh, Dan, that, that's danabrahams.com. My um, my own podcast is the Sports Psych Show. Uh, the Sports Psych Show, and that's on iTunes and and all the other kind of platforms that you can listen to on Android. Uh, I've got about 45 Twitter accounts. I've actually got three. Um, uh, at my main one is at danabrahams77. Uh, and that's predominantly sort of soccer and general sport at Abraham's golf. If you're a golfer and the sports Psych show has its own uh, Twitter handle, which is at sports psych show. Um, and I have my own online soccer Academy that if you are interested in the how, um, then there's a whole pile of, uh, animated videos for coaches, uh, players, coaches, and parents to work together on the mental side of the game. And I've got four books myself, Soccer Tough, Soccer Tough 2, Soccer Brain, and Golf Tough. So, um, and I think that's me. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. One of the things that I, I really wanted to do with this show was to introduce people that didn't know each other, but... Uh, just had a similar vibe. And so that was the idea between uh, you two. And, and this has been fantastic. I was writing notes as well, but I gave up about a quarter of the way through because it was too much. So I think, I think this is going to be one that, that has to be listened to two, three, four times from, from everyone listening. There was so much packed into it. Thank you, gentlemen. I know it's late for you uh, over in the UK, Dan, um, but thank you for accommodating. And this has been fantastic. At this stage of the show, most podcasts will ask you to go and leave a five-star rating. But if you're going to go somewhere, I'd rather you go and check out Athletic Greens. If you follow me on social media, you'll see me doing two things, exercising and traveling. At my last checkup, my doctor told me I had the lowest cholesterol she'd ever seen, but I was crucially low in a whole range of vitamins and minerals that I'd never heard of. And as a result, my hair was in terrible shape. I went looking for the best all-in-one solution I could find, and I landed on Athletic Greens. I found it an easy habit to get on board with. A simple routine of one scoop in some cold water every morning before I have breakfast, and I have all my bases covered. And now, my hair is back to normal. And if you still don't believe me, I'm an Australian promoting a product created by a New Zealander, so you know I'm not joking around. I can't stress this enough. Jump over to athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody and claim your special offer today. Five free travel packs with your first purchase. athleticgreens.com forward slash Cody. The Where Others Won't podcast is recorded at Apollo Studios in downtown Toronto and is produced and edited by Adam Esker. You can book me to speak by the Where Others Won't book or send me an email at codyroyal.com.